April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. I am proud to say that this episode of Anchored is made possible by Yeti. Over the years, Yeti has become a major part of my daily life. Whether it be a morning coffee while walking my dog, a quick lunch to go for the day, or the enormous Yeti Tundra 350 to keep my food cold while I am in the remoteness of BC's north, it's actually hard for me to imagine my day-to-day without them. If you haven't checked out the Yeti website yet, hop online and visit www.yeti.com. Carter Andrews is Mr. Personality but he is also one of the most talented anglers in the fishing industry. A jack-of-all-trades, Carter is well-versed with both fly and conventional gear, and he has put in his time as a guide, lodge owner, television host, and world-traveled angler. I met up with Carter in Florida to see if I might be able to capture his story here on Anchored. I was born in Litchfield, Connecticut. Connecticut? Connecticut, yeah. 1967. Oh, and no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. Yes. You said I wasn't old. You're not old. <laughs> yeah, 1967, actually January 2nd. So I was baby New Year um, in the little town that I was in. Everybody from the hardware store brought us paint and the grocery store brought food and everything because I guess that's a tradition with uh, when you're the New Year's baby. Okay, is it a pretty small town? Because usually it's like 12.01 a.m. and someone's had a New Year's baby. And it was a really small town. Okay, <laughs> got it. What about siblings? Uh, I have an older sister that's one year older. I, okay. that's, uh, she's, let's see, 16 months older. I have a brother that's 14 months younger and then a sister that's four years younger. So we were all right in a row. And we were best friends growing up, and we're still best friends. Oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. And did your parents stay together? Uh, they did until about 15, yeah, no, until about 15 years ago. So we were, they were, we were, we were the all-American family. Right. Went, so for a while. We still are. Okay, so talk to me about how you became an outdoorsman. Was your dad an outdoorsman? Dad certainly enjoyed exposing us to the outdoors. Uh, We had farm, we had horses, we did a lot of riding together, bird hunting, fishing. But really, it wasn't my dad that got me into fishing. He did it because it was an activity, and he just loves activities. He likes to have something to do all the time. Right. He's 85 years old now, and he's just as bad fishing now as he was 30 or 40, 50 years ago. It's unbelievable. So he dabbles in everything. Everything. Okay, okay, okay. Everything. And mom, what was she like? Perfect mother, took care of us and just, you know, ran the farm and helped us through life. Okay, well that's... She's still helping me through life. Okay, (laughs) got it. How long did you stay in Connecticut for? A couple years and we moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. So I like to say I'm a Southern boy because I did grow up in the South after... Raleigh, uh, we moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and I think I was in maybe third grade when I moved to Nashville. So I like to tell people that I grew up in Nashville, even though I was born in somewhere else, but... You sound like a Southern boy. I'm a Southern. I mean, I'm at heart, I'm a Southern boy. Yeah. What were you like as a kid (coughs) before high school? I mean, you're pretty... you, You are very... You have personality. Like, even when you walk... I've known you for five minutes now, but even when you walk down the hallway, like, it's clear that you have personality. Were you Mr. Personality back then? Thank you, April. Yes, I've always had this. (laughs) I don't know. It's a gift that I've had, and uh, (laughs) it's always been really easy for me to connect with people and... um, and people want to be with me. They gravitate towards it. And and, and I think in school, I, I used it with my teachers. I was a horrible student and somehow made it through everything perfectly. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm a people person. I'm, I find myself always surrounding myself with people. I don't, I don't, I like to be alone and I like to, as the story goes on, you're going to hear some of the places I've lived. So I like to be by myself in remote areas, but you know, I love being with people as well. So, so you go to high school, high school. Well, you know what, in grade school, this is where it all happened. I moved to Nashville. All of a sudden I'm thrown into a community that I'm not really used to. And this one kid that really befriended me, his name was Max Aura. 
and his dad was a bass fisherman. He was a psychiatrist and a bass fisherman. Okay. And I've, you know, this, this guy, Max, and I got to be friends, and they had a house up at the lake, Center Hill Lake. And I would go up every weekend, and, and I fished with them, and I fished with them for 10 years. Oh, really? Yeah. And we li- and so I did that at the lakes, and then we lived on a bend in a river on the Harpeth River. So when I wasn't with them fishing, I was fishing the Harpeth River. And any farm pond, I could get my line in. I was just obsessed with fishing. It was the only thing in my life. I made my own rods. I made my own lures. I did everything. I just couldn't get enough of it. Where did it go from there? Um... There was a period in, I went away to a boarding school in Virginia. No way. You yeah, really? Yeah, I went to a boarding school like your in Virginia. parents sent you to a boarding school? So actually, I'll back up a little bit. From Nashville, we moved back to Connecticut. So here I was, what I felt like growing up in the South, all of a sudden I'm back in Connecticut. And although I have lots of friends in New England, it's kind of a different place. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I found myself going to a boarding school. Um, even uh, though we were a very tight family unity, I went to boarding school back in the South and it happened to be on a river called the Rapidan. So I did quite a bit of fishing on weekends when I could, and I would sneak down to the river and go fishing and summers trying to involve myself in fishing as much as I can. My fly fishing day started with my dad. So that was all conventional fishing up at the lake and whatnot. But my dad would take us to the Smoky Mountains. Okay. And we had a little cabin in the summertime in the Smoky Mountains. So that's where the fly started. But like I said, he wasn't very good, so he didn't teach me much about fly fishing. But I would manage to get it out there, and I could catch fish. But um, there was a period in high end of high school to midway through college that – there were a lot of other things that were more important than fishing, so I kind of like for- like what Carter. <laughs> I don't I don't understand what else could possibly be more important. What did you see? How I conducted myself at the Yeti party or at the Costa party? <laughs> no, you know, just the um, you know having a good time in college. So you were distracted the- having a good time. Yes. Did that get in the way of your fishing? That yeah. Like so for how long though? For only about. Three or four years. Okay. All right. It's pretty standard, actually. You find that in, so. in a lot of these stories. Okay. There was you- still fishing, but not as the focus. The, the And not for a fish. Sorry. Right. I was fishing <laughs> for something else. You're right. I was fishing for something else. Okay. Okay. Did you go to college? I went to college. Um, halfway through college, part of the fun uh, got me in trouble. I went to rehab and got myself cleaned up. But was the, it alcohol or drugs alcohol, or Alcohol, drugs, women, just the whole thing. Got it. It was a pretty exciting time. <laughs> sounds, um, sounds like it. And then when after rehab, I said to myself, There's, I can't put myself back. I didn't want to put myself back in that. So when I was in, in rehab, I met a guy that actually sold insurance. Okay. So I'm 20 years old, and uh, I'm coming out of rehab, and I needed something to do. So I started selling insurance for this guy. So you didn't finish college. <clears throat> Did not finish college. Right. Right after rehab, I picked up fishing again big time. I moved uh, to a little town called Paris, Virginia, which is outside of Middleburg and Upperville in northern Virginia. I was on the Shenandoah River. So now I'm at home again, okay, and I was fishing smallmouth Every opportunity I got. I mean, I would fish before I went to work, and I'd fish when I came home from work, and I would do float trips every weekend. And so I was back in my game again. I was back in my element. Is this where your brain starts thinking, I'm happier fishing than I am selling insurance. Maybe I can make a living at fishing. That came a little bit later. Okay. I did the insurance, and because of my personality, I think I was incredibly successful insurance, and I was doing really, really, really well. We did a family trip out to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and I never came home. Okay. I stayed in Jackson. Wow. So that was how I got to Wyoming. Started fly fishing out there a lot more, because that's what you do in Wyoming. Very quickly, Jack Dennis picked me up as a guide. And I guided uh, at Jack Dennis Sports for about eight years. And then the Lodge of Palisades Creek, which is on the South Fork of the Snake over in Idaho, I did more guiding for them. And then I was the head guide there. I actually met my wife there. Um, What was she doing there? That was my second wife. Okay. I didn't talk about my first wife, but not that I don't want to talk about Heather because you were a great part of my life. 
Heather, just in <laughs> case you're listening. Um, but uh, the Lodge of Palisades Creek had lots of guides, lots of water that we were licensed on. While all that was happening with that guiding career, for all of you guys that are out there, because this question is asked to me all the time, how would you get started and how would you get to where you are? Mm. Guiding is a really big part of, you know, you're doing a couple of things. You're developing a client base, which is really important. And that client base in a place like Jackson, they weren't local. Some of them were locals for sure, but a lot of them are people that live all across the country. Okay, so... My reach, instead of just being locally, all of a sudden became national. And the more and more I fished and the more clients that I had, and it grew and grew and grew. So somebody would fish with me, and let's say they go back to, uh, you know, um, Washington, D.C. or San Francisco, and they tell their friends about their experience the next summer. You know, I've got referrals from those people, and now I'm fishing. So that base went from fishing somebody different every single day and it grew and grew and grew to just i don't know it was if you didn't call six or eight months ahead you were like, getting in you don't get in just like these other great you know guides that are out there that have done it do you think it was a fishery or do you think it was you it was both it was for sure it was both part of it was me <laughs> right but you know jackson's also a huge draw for people to come and you know i had a choice of eight or ten different rivers and other bodies of water to fish from. So it was a great variety. But that only lasted four months of the year. Yeah. You got eight months to fill out. I got another eight months, and that's when I started the destination travel. I figured you were going down that road. So how many years total did you guide? Um, Well, guiding in Wyoming was probably about 15 years in Wyoming. And half of that time was doing, or the first half of it was doing some destination trips And, you know, so if I'm in Wyoming, all of a sudden I'm doing, you know, trips to the Bahamas, trips to Argentina and places like that with the clients that are in my boat all summer long. They're asking, you know, what are some other fishing opportunities? It's pretty easy to put those groups together. Or if you can find one key guy that has six Six friends, that's right. Then all of a sudden. So when you start putting it all together, next thing you know, you can do four, six, eight trips a year to these great places. They're paying for you to go. You're getting commission from the lodge. They're giving you, you know, a hosted position. And that was really fun. That's a great way to see the world and other fisheries. But if you don't have the client base to start with, you can't get to that point. So it's building the client base in the beginning. 15 years with your personality, just from what I'm taking in so far, how did you last that long? Because after year eight, I was like, okay, I'm out here 10 hours a day. There's so many other things I could be doing that, A, make me more money, and B, are more productive. I put in the 10 years because I always said I would, but 15 for you, how did you last that long? So listen, that was 15 for trout. All of a sudden, things changed. No, there's not more. I went from the destination travel aspect of it to saying, you know what? I want to live in the Bahamas. So now I started spending, you know, Seven months a year in the Bahamas, which was an incredible experience. I found the first year was in Exuma. A lot of people have heard of Exuma in the Bahamas, but that's kind of a busy place. I got down there. I was like, wow, man, there's a lot going on here. So I did a little bit of research. I found a a group of islands just south of Exuma called Crooked and Acklands. And I looked at it, and there's this incredible bank system between the two islands with a reef around the entire, all, both the islands, and then really, really close to shore, a quarter mile offshore, thousands of feet deep. And I'm looking at it, and I decided one day I'd go down there to visit the island. And nobody's down there. They had no electricity on the island at the time. It's probably the larger, one of the largest land masses in the Bahamas between those two islands and the least populated of all the Bahamas. I like this. It was the one of the best experiences of my life. And I ended up doing that for 12 years. But what were so you doing? I was going back and forth. So the summer's in Wyoming. So yeah. that was about halfway through my guiding in Jackson. And then I started going down there for the winters. And the first year I went down there, there I mean, there. That This story about Crooked Island would really take five hours to tell it all, but I'm going to give it all in 15 minutes. But Crooked Island, I went down there. There was one guy down there. Uh, his name Elton McKinney, Shaky. A lot of people have heard of him. He was fishing out of a blue runner, they called it, which was, it wasn't even a skiff. It was a 
you know, 17 foot um, panga. panga type of, okay. <laughs> yeah. And I was living with Miss Daisy in, they called it the big house. It was built in 1872. It was an old stone house. Um, Crooked Island was the second landfall of Christopher Columbus. There's oh, cool. Tons and tons of history down there. And actually, Long Key, not Long Island, used to be the capital of the Bahamas. At one point, there were over 3,000 people living on Long Key. Right now, there are 15 people living on Long Key. The first church is there. The ruins from the first church are there. There's you know, glass balls, bottles that we found, old wine casks that we dove and found in the sand that were from, you know, the colonial ships that came over. It was really a unique spot, not to mention, well, I'll back up a little bit. So, Ms. Daisy, I lived in the big house. I lived upstairs, no screens on the windows. Am I, is, this like an Amer- is this a Southern thing? What is Miss Daisy? <laughs> is this your wife? Is this a driving me, Miss Daisy? Is this a uh, Miss Daisy was the woman that had the little shop that had the food, and it's actually Daisy Scavala. Oh, okay. But okay. I called her Miss Daisy. Got it. And um, you know, no screens on the windows in the Bahamas. Obviously, Ooh. no AC because we didn't have electricity. We ran on a generator. But she <laughs> would wash my sheets every single day, not because I'm so dirty, but because the mosquitoes were so bad. I'd wake up in the morning and my sheets were covered in blood. Yeah, that's a little Everything. much. Yeah, and I would do, bad. and I, so the first season I was down there, it was out of control. I didn't have clients, but I was down there living and kind of working on trying to develop a bone fishery. So Shaky and I would go out, we'd fish, and you know his his nephew would go with us. And the following year, I started bringing in some clients. You wanted to guide them, or host them, or be um, the lodge owner. Where was your I head was at? Kind of. Um, Oh, my head was gone. I didn't know what I was doing, but okay. I just knew that I really loved living down there. But you couldn't and legally guide there. Like, that's really difficult in the Bahamas, isn't it? Uh, you couldn't. And back then, listen, where I was, Crooked Island, there was nobody down there. I could do whatever I wanted in Crooked okay. Island. And I actually got to spend a lot of time. I didn't do much of the bone fishing. I helped train a lot of those guides. I helped them buy their boats, go to the Development Bank of the Bahamas, and, and you know, put together business plans for them. So... A lot of lodges in the Bahamas own the boats and then hire guides. I, coming from my background of guiding, and the guy that owned the little hotel down there wouldn't really support me financially from the fishing program. So that's where I took the approach. Well, let me show, put together a business plan for the guides. We'll go to the Development Bank of the Bahamas, get them to buy the boats. And then instead of paying a guide, you know, 70 or or $100 a day for uh, guiding, in a lodge boat, we're going to pay them $250 a day. They're going to own their own boats, maintain and take care of their boats. Yeah, it makes sense. And it worked out really well. And um, they still own their own boats down there and still doing their own program. The hurricane a couple of years ago devastated Crooked Island, and they've come back and they're doing well. So anybody looking for an incredible bonefish permit destination in the Bahamas. Lots of people have heard of Crooked Island now, but back then nobody had heard of it. But Crooked, I started it from the bone fishing because that was my fly fishing background from Jackson Hole. And a lot of the clients, the fly clients, like to do destination travel and whatnot. So bringing them down there. But fishing, I've always wanted to learn more and do more. So I kind of gradually got into the reef fishing. I met Jose Wahebe, and Jose came down uh, to fish with us, and he asked me about pilchards. And I said, I didn't even know what a pilchard was. I don't know if I do either. Is it like a part of a fish? A pilchard is a small bait fish, a schooling bait fish. Okay. And with pilchards, you can do magic with a cast. And once you, you, you net them, you put them in a bait well, and you can go around places, and you can chum with a lot of live bait. And it oh. gets everything going crazy. Okay. And... Uh, Crooked Island has a lot of mutton snapper. We call it a mutton fish, but it has a lot of mutton snapper. And um, Jose was asking me about the mutton fish. I said, yeah, man, they're everywhere, but we catch them on conch. And he says, well, if you can find pilchards, and he goes, I'm pretty sure there are probably pilchards here. I said, well, I don't know. I've never seen a pilchard down here. I didn't even know what a pilchard was at the time. Like I said, coming from Tennessee and coming from Wyoming, <laughs> right. I had no idea what a pilchard was. He left me his cast net, and he shipped me a, be- a bait well that I could with a pump that I could put in a boat. And uh, he taught me how to throw the cast net. And uh, one day while we're out bone fishing, sure enough, I see a school of bait that's back in the flats on the grass. And uh, I said, that must be pilchard. So we go back the next day. I netted a bunch of them. I put them in the bait well. I went to the grounds where we 
typically fish the mutton fish. It's kind of a shallow, rocky bars with sea fans and feathers on it. And I started throwing pilchards out. And the next thing you know, the entire water turned red. It was just mutton fish everywhere. I literally, I kid you not, there must have been a hundred mutton fish in the water behind the boat going crazy, chasing all of our bait down, you know, schools of you know, five, 10, 15 mutton fish in a school running down the bait. Because keep in mind, when I'm talking about throwing bait out, I'm talking about throwing handfuls of five and 10 out. So a pilchard, their defense mechanism is being in a school, in a tight school. Right. And when they're spinning around in, in that school, it's hard for the predators to pick out one to come eat it. But when you're throwing slack bait in the water like that, all of a sudden they become very vulnerable. How big are they? You can get pilchards anywhere from like three inches to five or six inches, as big as your hand maybe. Okay. It's just because the only bait I work with is like we catch a lot of slimies. I do a lot of marlin fishing. Slimy. Yeah. And so like slimy mackerel. And so, is that an Australian term now? Yeah, okay. I guess so. If you haven't heard of it, you're a marlin angler. So yeah, we go out and catch the slimies. Uh-huh. And yeah, I mean, it's like it's gold. Uh-huh. You aren't throwing five or ten of those away at a time. No way. Pilchard, well, so pilchards small, are gold too, but they're small, and we throw cast nets. Throw those out, right. and uh, the place erupted. That night, I go home and I call Jose, and I'm like. Dude, you're not going to believe what I saw today. And he says, are you sure they were mutton fish? I'm like, I I promise you they're mutton fish. And they were everywhere. And uh, so he flew down the next week. He flew down the next week. And uh, that was the second show I did with Jose. And there were just, you know, it was magic. Did that put it on the map? That started to put it all on the map. And then it grew from, you know, the inshore fishing. So I did that for the next three years focusing on that hard with my great friend Robbie Gibson, uh, who had the only center console down there at the time. It turned out all of a sudden I've got bone fishermen that, you know, would come home and see all the snapper that we were catching. Now all of a sudden they want to go out and do that. And I started thinking about, you know, I can really diversify this fishery. So instead of having eight bone fishermen, I can have eight bone fishermen and, you know, another group of three or four inshore guys. Right. So now all of a sudden I'm putting more people in the hotel and, um, and providing a lot of fish for the hotel. So that was, that was pretty fun with the refish. And it wasn't just a snapper. It's, it's snapper, it's jacks, it's mackerel, it's grouper. And we did a lot of that on fly as well, because so much of my background was also fly. We did it, you know, hook baits out there, but the fly fish, when you've got, you know, fish running around like they're on crack, all you've got to do is put the fly in front of them and you've got, a lot of times you get the bite. Just uh, kind of as a side note, is the fishery still today what it was back then? Sure. It's just, it's the same way it was. For real? Things haven't changed down there because, you know, they do have electricity now. They fixed up the roads. There's um, screens on the windows? And their screens on the wall. Okay, hallelujah. <laughs> we got a winner. Okay, where do you go from here? I started offshore fishing while I was down there. That was the in the Bahamas? Thing, in the Bahamas. So that, <laughs> okay, take me down the sudden, road. This, this is the, the graduation from, you know, continuing wanting to, to learn more and better myself as an angler and, you know, bass fishing, then trout fishing in Wyoming. Now I'm bone fishing in the Bahamas. Now I'm getting into the reef fishing and developing that. And then all of a sudden, I'm out one day trolling. And we catch a wahoo. And yes, we would catch, you know, fish sometimes while we're out trolling. It's not that it's that big of a secret, but then all of a sudden catching some wahoo and not just regular wahoo, giant wahoo. Okay. Crooked Island, Rum Key, San Salvador is known as some of the best wahoo fishing in the Caribbean and now, you know, in in all of the Caribbean. Now all of a sudden I've come to find that I'm in some of the best there is. So now I went out and bought a big game boat. And how old are you at that point? Um, late twenties, early thirties. Okay, and you're married for the second time now? No, I'm, uh, we're not married. Um, but the woman Heidi that I met at the lodge in Idaho is now living with me in the Bahamas, which right. is a pretty funny story. Her father actually, her mom moved to Jackson to be the first woman ski instructor from Germany. Right. Yeah, she was the first woman ski instructor. She went to the Bahamas, met Heidi's dad. So he's not Bahamian, but he had lived in the Bahamas for 58 years. He has been he was there for 58 years. Whoa. And Heidi's three sisters all live in the Bahamas from her dad's first wife. So they're Heidi's half-sisters. 
So anyhow, so for her to come live with me in the Bahamas, it was just kind of natural. Yes, I'm going to the Bahamas, but Crooked Island, really? You sure? <laughs> right. And um, so I started doing the offshore fishing down there, focusing on the Wahoo to begin with, but then the progression just keep going on, the tuna, the dolphin, the marlin, and the marlin fishing in Crooked Island was absolutely tremendous. Um, and, uh, stop. I don't understand. I didn't think that there was great marlin fishing in the Bahamas. There's... Um, at times there can be good marlin fishing in the Bahamas, but the Southern Bahamas has some great marlin fishing. There were a number of days that we would catch five. I mean, it makes perfect sense. In the Southern Bahamas, there's no pressure. There's nobody there. And what really turned me on to the marlin fishing, what gave me a clue to how good it was, I was contacted by Eric Prince, Dr. Eric Prince, who used to work for, he's retired now, for um, U.S. Marine Fisheries and NOAA. And he was the guy for satellite tagging Blue Marlin. He contacted me one time because they did surface seining in the Western Atlantic and they found 10 times more week old Blue Marlin in the Southern Bahamas down by Crooked Island than anywhere else in the Western Atlantic. Really? So he wants to come down and do a tagging program. Of course he does, yeah. We didn't have the proper boat at that time for him to come to a tagging program. So he came down with Bart Miller from Black Bart Lures, who had already been fishing with Wahoo Fishing. They helped develop some of their Wahoo lures in Crooked Island. For those of you all that like Wahoo and know Wahoo a little bit, just to give you an idea when I talk about big Wahoo, one of my uh, best days of Wahoo, I got a 142-pound Wahoo and a 126-pound Wahoo in the same day. I didn't know that they got that big. So the 142 at that time, I think, was like 16 pounds off the all-tackle world record. Oh, my goodness. Okay, had anybody else been pioneering this offshore fishery before you? I think there were were certainly boats from Florida that would occasionally make it down there but there are no services there's no marina down there you couldn't get fuel down there it was a very difficult place to fish especially right. when you own a you know two million dollar sport fish boat and you like to be at a marina yes there were definitely guys that knew about it that wanted to you know be in the outback so crooked not that but you know these guys are coming down for you know two days a year and I'm living there. So when you're living at a place like that and you're able to experience it on a daily basis and what you can learn on a daily basis, everything changes a little bit. You just, you know, the learning curve is... So steep, huh? That's right. That's right. I mean, something changed because you came back to the States. So where did you, I mean, did, did your plan ever come into fruition? Well, I got to the point where my wife and I um, were buying the lodge that we had been working at and managing for a long time. Partway through the process, we brought in um, a client, friend, investor in it, (laughs) um, and things went sideways. We all invested money in it together, and it um, went really well until some plans were changed, and anyhow... um, I could tell you the painful side of the story, but I'll just say that (laughs) we ended up leaving. And uh, I said, at that point, I said to Heidi, my wife, I said, what do you want to do? And she said, let's start all over again. We had one child that was born by now. So we had Haley and Haley spent a couple years down there with us. So Heidi's down there running a lodge, having a, you know, taking care of a, you know, an infant, a one-year-old, a two-year-old and whatnot. And, uh, now she's pregnant, and we don't have anything to do, and she wants to start all over again. Did you get your money back out of the lodge? We did get our money back. And that's a good way to start over. So we got our money back. But I assume when I said we're going to start over that we were going to do something in the Bahamas. And oh. she said, how about Panama? Oh, okay. You just totally threw me a curveball. I did not see this coming. Why did she choose Panama? Well, with her previous husband, they lived in Costa Rica. <laughs> oh, you guys are really interesting. So with her previous husband, they lived in Costa Rica for a little bit. So she really liked that. And she figured, you know what? Let's just go do something totally new. I like her. Uh, you know, I was really fortunate that she's willing to follow me around and do the things we did. But as soon as she told me that she was willing to go to Panama, the next week I was on a plane down there looking at property. And I'm I'm looking around all through Panama trying to figure out where I want to be and what I want to do down there. And there was a group of islands called, there is a group of islands called Isla Secas. And uh, they're 25 miles off the coast on the Pacific side. Obviously way more than we can spend, 
but it was the ideal place, perfect to set up a fishing operation. It was for sale. Unfortunately, the guy that owned it before, he had it as an eco lodge. They had yurts down there at the time, and he died in a plane accident. Mm-hmm. Pretty sad story. So the uh, um, his estate was selling, and I put together a business plan to run a fishing lodge out of there and put it out to a few of my clients, a few of my clients that I thought would not only that are passionate about fishing, but have the money to do something like this. So you were willing to work with investors again? Well, I originally went to Panama saying no investors. (laughs) Yes, of course. But then when I saw this piece of property, I knew there was a special place and I needed to do something with it. It was on an island or it was an island? It's, it, it's on an, it's 16 islands. The whole archipelago was being sold all 16 islands, and the lodge was on one of the islands. Okay, so you needed to get, get together to buy one. No, how do you, you have to buy all of them? All of them. Okay, so that's a tough all one six, to, to do on your own. That's a tough one. So I had uh, a business plan that I was shopping around to a few of my clients, and I sent it to this one guy that said, you know what, I love it. It's great. Let's go down and take a look at it. I'm going to be so pushy here. How much does something like that go for? Because I'm going to start calling I, you Leo here if you're buying on islands. No, I mean, I, I, it wasn't, I mean, it was, it is a lot. I think it was like 20 million or something. Okay, so it is way up there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I th- I'm pretty sure that's about where it was. We're not talking but, like you're getting a deal at $500,000. Like, this no, is a proper, you, it's really hard to find people to get that much money from. So I'm very curious to hear where you go from there. So I call the real estate agent and he says, Carter, you're not going to believe it. It's, it went under contract last week. What? I was devastated. I couldn't believe it. Oh, no. So we, And I said, can you tell me who's buying it? No, he goes, no, we have a confidentiality agreement. I can't do it. So the story gets really good from here. I go back to the Bahamas. I'm uh, with a friend of mine that has a place called Flamingo Key. It's, it's Charles Bethel. Flamingo Key is on the west side of Andros, and I'm down there with him, and he calls me on the VHF one day and says, hey, man, you got you to gotta come back early for cocktails because Lewis is here and he wants to have drinks and dinner with you. And Lewis had been a client that I'd had down at Crooked Island. So we get back there. We're sitting around that night. He goes, I'm really sorry about what happened at Crooked. You know, what are you and Heidi going to do now? And I said, well, we're, gonna, we're, we're moving to Panama. We're going to start something in Panama. He goes, I close, I'm, I'm closing on a place next week. No way. And I said, Isla Secas? And he goes, you know it? And oh I, said, I said, actually, Louis, yeah, no, I, I know it, and I have a business plan. For it. For it. And, um, you know, so he read it, and he sent me up to New York to see the people that kind of work with his properties and whatnot. And uh, they flew me back down there the next week to do some more, you know, to f- fine-tune. Imagine me doing a business plan. Trust me, it wasn't a very good one, but it got... (laughs) But you got Heidi, and I've got faith in (laughs) Heidi here, too. (laughs) So I went back down there, and the next thing, the next season, um, I show up down there with two 34-foot CVs um, with twin 300s, a 58-foot Donzi Sportfish, and a 135-foot LCU, all three of those boats on the deck of that LCU, which is an old military landing craft that's going to support our fishing operation. So I've got, you know, ice makers making 600 pounds of ice a day on it. I've got fuel storage for, you know, about 70,000, 60,000 gallons of fuel on that uh, LCU. My fishing crew can live on that LCU. And then all the staff for the resort, were all living on the island, but we didn't want to put that extra infrastructure on the island. So I've got the the two 34 CVs, the 58 Donzi, and the support vessel to help support the fishing operation. And now I'm open for business. This is incredible. Yeah, it was pretty fun. And not only just open for business, but open for business in Panama, arguably one of the top five big game and inshore destinations in the world. Yeah. So after going through this terrible loss about Crooked Island, I mean, that's where I wanted to spend the rest of my life. I'd been there for 15 years. Okay, um, had that bad falling out, and and uh, but things only got better. Panama, know? I mean, yeah. that is so high on my list. You got no idea. Well, I guess you're gonna have to come see us. So you still you still have it. So well, so we did that for it, it's not really it's not mine, but I'm director of fishing down there. Did that for four years, and okay. then they decided they want to do a resort rebuild. So we were in yurts, which were. Uh, they were very, very nice shirts, and they're raised above ground, and they had concrete pads, and everything runs on solar. 
but it wasn't it wasn't doing the island justice you know what it really is so we spent the past four years doing a rebuild it's absolutely spectacular probably one of the nicer places in central america now still very small boutique hotel each one of the casitas now i'm thinking are about 900 square feet with 1200 square feet of decking their own plunge pools we have up on the we built a runway up there as well on the on the island uh, 1,800 solar panels that... Uh, 1,800? 1,800 solar panels. Jeez. We do have backup generators because there are times during the rainy season that we just don't get enough solar. So we have AC in these casitas now. The main lodge, Terrassa building, is all out of structural bamboo and absolutely, absolutely gorgeous. And uh, in January, we're reopening. Coming up, Carter and I talk about television, the Panama Lodge, and fish handling. Again, thank you to Yeti for their support. Head on over to www.yeti.com and check out the Hopper. Built for those adventures where you want to just grab your gear and go, it's the original 100% leak-proof Ice for Days portable cooler. Made from materials found in things like survival suits, it's also tough as nails. I brought my hopper with me on boats, helicopters, rafts, and I even use it as my airplane carry-on. Again, check them out at www.yeti.com. So while we were down there, those four years, um, I had two girls that were down there. Heidi's homeschooling them, so they would homeschool in the mornings, and then... Um, so this wasn't that long ago. No, this was. This was just... Yeah, no, this wasn't that long ago. But yeah, so I had this incredible crew, and now we're getting to go back. I'm getting ready to go back down there. I, the girls probably won't go with me, which is kind of tough, so I've got the... You know, I, I have a lot going on in my life with the TV show, Yeah, the we've farm. missed all that. I mean, I'm going to be backing oh, yeah. you way up. From a career stance, were you even like, are you career motivated? Like, are you career I just driven? Want to go fishing, man. Right? Okay, I'm starting <laughs> to get that vibe. So it's not like you're out there being like, okay, I want to guide or I want to pioneer this or I want to be a, I want the lodge to be yeah. boom or I want to be the next yellow dog. I mean, you're out there and you're just rolling with the punches. Yeah. Where does the TV thing get into here then? Um, you know, I had gotten the opportunity to do a lot of TV through Jose. I did that, uh, and I, I think about 13 episodes with him, called him his first Blue Marlin. That's when people look at, you know, Jose's shows and whatnot. That was probably one of the greater shows he ever did. And I did the ESPN Great Outdoor Games a few times, so that's fly fishing. You hear me talk about conventional fishing all the time, but I did a lot of fly fishing uh that's one of the things that actually propelled me in fly fishing. That was back in like 98. I think uh, I come from the Bahamas. I show up there in Lake Placid, New York for the casting competition. And, you know, here are a lot of incredibly talented fly anglers. Here's this kid that's showing up from the Bahamas. He's got his Jackson Hole background, but uh, a little intimidating because it's, you know, Steve Ray Jeff is there. I mean, that's the quality of the guys that were there casting. And um, and somehow I managed to pull it out of my ass, and I won distance and accuracy, beat Steve Ray Jeff. No way. Yeah, what? Yeah, yeah. No, man. I know. I don't even know what to say. I think he had a really bad day, and I had a really good day. Okay. okay? Got it. <laughs> so uh, at the end of that, he came up to me and started talking to me. And that's where my relationship started with G. Loomis was – after the the great outdoor games that's organic i like that mm. and i'm still fishing them today so you know that's that's how things happen in this business and that was pretty unique but i got to go back to the great outdoor games the next year and won the casting competition the next year again so, yeah again who are you yeah i know how about that that's amazing <laughs> okay all right now what about and that was a long time ago <laughs> You know, and I, but I still fly fish, not like that, but I can, I can still pick up a fly rod and do pretty well. Do you fly fish for Marlin? Uh, I, so probably one of the greatest, um, bait and switch I've done that and everything. And that's wonderful. And it's very exciting to see a fish coming up hot behind the boat. But this year I was, uh, doing a show in Mag Bay, Magdalena Bay, which is in Mexico. And uh, we heard about this striper bite. So we were up grouper fishing, but we heard about this striper bite. So we jumped in the boat and ran about 150 miles south. For three days, we were the only boat in probably 
three square miles of thousands and thousands of striped marlin on bait balls. It was unbelievable. It's, it's probably, you know, I've done a lot of tuna fishing and see, you know, tuna boils with just hundreds of tuna on the surface. This was striped marlin. It was the most incredible experience. And, you know, we did catch them on live baits, but then I started switching to lures and we're casting lures to free swimming fish. That's like my dream come true is to cast a free swimmers. I did it on lures and it was so much fun on lures. I pulled out the fly rod. You know, the culmination of that trip was uh, to pull out the fly rod and, and cast a fly. I'm standing on the bow of the boat. I'm casting a fly to just free swimming marlin there some of them are on bait ball some of them are moving from bait ball to bait ball and to cast a fly strip and have them just turn and come eat it and it was it was it was incredible i'm coming back to your television series where Um, does it take off how long has it been on the air for i'm going into my fifth season okay so Um, when the panama lodge went under renos or went under the rebuild is that kind of when you dove into it well, unfortunately, I didn't know about the rebuild. I was the TV show got started because uh, a production company called JM Outdoors, which owns and produces Bassmasters, they do Zona Show. They did the ESPN Great Outdoor Games, the Madfin, which was a catch and release shark series that I did a number of times. Uh, they did that, so I had a good relationship with them. They also did Jose Wahebe show, and uh, after Jose passed away, we gave it about three years, and they came to me and asked me if I wanted to. Um, start a show. Right. So we came to ICAST about uh, five years ago, and I walked around to all the sponsors that I've been working with for years, and next thing I know, everybody signed the dotted line, and I was off to the races. How are you liking television? Uh, You know, I just, it's another way to kind of feed my habit. I'm getting money to go travel and produce, you know, just killer content, and um you know the TV. I've I've always enjoyed uh, having a little bit of recognition, and this is more. And I, you know, walk in the halls of ICAST and having people stop me, tell me how much they enjoy seeing the show and the relationships and the storytelling. It's I mean it's rewarding and it's fulfilling. Um, but if I didn't have the show, I'd have to figure out another way to you know, feed that habit because it is expensive. You know what it's like to travel all over the place. and It's a lot of pressure. But if you're happy, if the network's treating you well, it helps too. I got a great network. The Outdoor Channel um, is behind me 100%. And, you know, that's certainly helpful. Sponsors are helpful. Um, but you know what? I'm fortunate that I don't have, you know, they put the cameras on and it doesn't change for me. I just, it's, I'm doing what I normally do. What's the plan for you now besides going back to Panama to be a fish bum. So you said something about only guiding for 15 years. we got to realize is that, I mean, it's been, I almost think of myself as guiding. I've been doing it almost straight through the whole time. I've never really stopped. Even, even when I'm taking friends out or family out um, or sponsors and things like that, it's just, just, it's going fishing. But what do you call yourself? Like what's, what's, what would we label you in the industry? Do you think you're a television personality? Would you call yourself that? I think I've become a, a little bit of a personality. I like to think of myself as an ambassador to the sport. You know, it has given me so much. I'm where I am because of the people in this industry that have helped me. Jose, I learned something from everybody that I fish with. You know, I've had, I have a lot of great friends that have been a part of me getting to where I am. I certainly haven't done all this by myself. And you know, I, I think an ambassador, and I think it's really important that for those of us that have been doing this for a while, that we need, it's time for us to give back, you know, to, you know, this industry and the sport. And, um, you know, part of giving back is teaching, showing ethical fishing and being a responsible angler and how we handle fish and, uh, you know, conservation side of things. I mean, I'm a huge avid of catch and release. Sure, I kill fish and I eat plenty of fish and whatnot. But I think with uh, social media, there is a lot of stuff I see on there that I don't think is, is right. And it's kind of painful to watch. And I I do what I do and show what I show. Um, I... <laughs> 
I'll say it for you. I haven't been in this industry as long as you have, but it has been 15 years now, and there's been some major changes. And social media does a lot of great things, and it does some really awful things. The thing about you that's unique, though, is that you have been able to dabble in the conventional and the fly fishing side. So you have a very unique viewpoint. At ICAST this year, that fly fishing side's pretty quiet. Have you seen a lot of changes in the gear fishing side? I don't like seeing, you know, the 20 tune on the deck of the boat. Okay, so you're talking retention. Yeah, even if there are four guys on the boat and they killed, you know, 15 tuna, what are they going to do with it all? Right. I mean, granted, commercial fishing's out there and they're decimating. I just, I watch guys trying to get, you know, a great Instagram clip and they're going to let the shark eat, you know, four tarpon. It's not against the law, but it's ethically, as an angler, I don't think it's right. Some of that stuff, like I said, as an angler, and you've got this uh, younger generation. I was a younger generation at one point, but we didn't have the the you know the means that we didn't have the communication and the the social media around us to see it. And I just there are a lot of things that are happening now that I don't think are right just to get views and eyeballs. Are there a lot of people in the conventional world who share the same viewpoint as you? Um, I think it's stronger in the fly world. It is, and that's what I'm very tactfully trying to go at because I never want to alienate gear guys because I also learned everything by fishing conventional. I still spin fish. But the thing is, fly fishing has brought a level of ethics into my gear angling. Has it done that for you? It's done. It's certain. I think that's where it all started. Okay. Yeah. I think that's certainly where it all started, and that's part of kind of what I teach. But, you know, you also have, you know... um yeah, no, I think that the, 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 the conventional anglers historically have had a different view on how fishing and, and catch policies are. Where I come more from a catch and release kind of background, that's probably from the fly stuff. But like I said, I'm not, I'm not saying don't keep fish. No, no, we all keep I, fish, but within I, reason. Within reason. So... When when uh, the laws are set, and even if the law says I can keep five of these and, you know, five of that, you know, I sit there and look at I was out, well, I, I mean, I did it the other day. We kept uh, three mutton fish and probably seven gray snapper or something like that. But there were also three of us on the boat. Right. You know, so let's say, let, well, maybe there were nine fish, ten fish, and we, you know, each took home three. So... But when there are 40 boats out there and everybody's doing that, I, I don't know. I just have, a, you know, but the posting it and bragging and the next person has to do more. I'm not, I'm not sure where, where I'm trying to go. I just, no, I, you're tiptoeing because it's a sensitive subject. I see stuff out but, there that drives me crazy. So can you put any of that in your show? I mean, obviously you're leading by example. I, uh, you'll rarely see, you know, You'll see me releasing ninety five percent of the fish that we catch. I mean, that's gotta that's gotta be influential to the the anglers. I think so. I have a lot of people you. talk to me about that. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people don't tiptoe around on this show because it's a really really hot topic on this show. But you know that when the state gives you a right to take those fish, it's hard to argue it. That's the point. Yeah, I guess really true. And then all of a sudden, you you know, you have commercial interests that are out there. We all like to eat fish, so the commercial fisheries are going to live. They're there, okay? What the sport fisherman is really doing is, I'm not going to say it's small compared to, I mean, the sport fisherman doing compared to the commercial fisherman, because one commercial fisherman may go out and take, I don't know, a hundred grouper in a day, but 50 sport fishermen are going to go out and take a hundred grouper that day too. So, you know, there's, it, it all happens, you know, for everybody to be blaming everything on the commercial fishermen, that's not necessarily true because we do impact the fishery as well. You know, the state sets laws. So when you take what is your legal limit by the law, how can you argue against that? I mean, you can't, we, we can argue and say, well, maybe that's still excessive, you know? So, that's why I, I look at I take what I need. I like to have fresh fish. I don't like to freeze my fish. Yeah. Um, but I hate to see. I've watched things change, you know, whether it's – I give you other simple examples. In Wyoming, I remember when we started guiding, when I started guiding on the South Fork, 
the quality of fishing there, I think, was way better than it is now. The average size fish was a lot larger than it is now. Um, the pressure was half of what it is now. Not that people are keeping more fish, but it's also trying to get the photos. And, uh, you know, I would watch um, somebody catch a nice, you know, 22-inch trout and the client wants to hold it because they want the picture and they're trying to hold it up and the trout's already slimy enough and he shakes a little bit and he falls in the bottom of the boat and he bounces around, you pick it up again and he drops in the bottom of the boat again and he bounces around and everything and then you release and he swims away. Well, half the time that fish that you think just swam away ends up dying. So I've watched the size of the fish get smaller and I think part of it is because you know, these trophy fish that are getting caught or getting their pictures taken, I would always make my client get out of the boat. They want a picture of that fish, we get out of the boat. If they want to hold it, we get out of the boat. They're in the water so that they can hold it. If they drop the fish, it falls back in the water. It's kind of more natural instead of in a non-skid on the bottom of a boat and stuff like that. There's just, like I said, being a, you know, a responsible angler, a responsible guide, people that are in the business help educating the people that are, your clients or other people. It's just, um, it's tough. I don't know. And I've made plenty of mistakes myself. I'm certainly yeah, yeah. not perfect about any of this stuff, yeah, what? but no? I sit there and I sit there and, and look at it and think about it a lot. And, uh, you know, it's up to all of us. Uh, you know, at some point you're about to have a, a baby. I've got my two, my girls right now, my 12 year old Haley, uh, was sending me, texting me pictures yesterday. She jumped in the four wheeler. She had, we have two beagles. She took the two beagles to the river there in Wyoming right now. She took the two beagles to the river and she's out there fishing by herself on the river. And she was taking pictures of the trout that she was catching and sending them to me yesterday. So it was kind of priceless. And in order for us to continue this, whether it's, you know, her generation or the generation after that, I mean, we have to think about it. We have to take care of things. And, uh, you know, just because the state says we can do this, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, we get excessive on it. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.